right, so my name's Emily, like Rebecca said, um, and I actually usually come to Tuesday morning studies, but switch to Sundays for Jonah. So this is fun. I've missed all of you a lot, so this is fun for me. Um, I'm married to my husband, Lance, and, um, well, this is a little off script, so starting off bad, but um, last night we were in bed, and the one thing I was nervous about was taking a drink of water and having it all just, like, go down me, which I don't know why I'd be, like, drinking like that, but so he woke up this morning and brought me this fun water bottle with a little cap, so I know, he's pretty great. Um, <laughs> we have two kids, um, Ruben is four and Rosa is one, and one of my greatest fears is actually drowning. Um, in fact, I have a truce with the ocean and really any body of water with mysterious creatures underneath it that if I don't bother it, it doesn't bother me. So far, it's worked out good. But when reading chapter two, I find myself taking deep breath after deep breath and almost hyperventilating a little bit, and hopefully I'm not the only one that finds it a little terrifying. Um, so this morning, we're going to talk about Jonah's realization of God's omnipresence when he hits literal and figurative rock bottom. And then I actually get the privilege to share part of my testimony when I was going through a storm. And, um, and then we'll end with Jonah's proclamation that salvation belongs to the Lord and how it was partially Jonah's racism that was keeping him from wanting to see the Ninevites saved and what that might mean for us. Um, so, so far in our study, we've seen God give Jonah a commission to go to Nineveh and warn the Ninevites of their impending destruction to turn, if they don't turn from their evil. Um, because Ninevites are thugs. They're probably terrorists. They're all lazy there. They don't have any family values. So Jonah would rather run from God's presence than even give them a whiff of God's grace and mercy. So that's what he does. Out of fear, pride, and disobedience, he hightails it to Tarshish. He hops on a boat, and we see God's power over creation when he hurls a storm onto the sea. And um, even when the sailors beg him to arise, cry out to your God, we see him out of stubbornness and pride um, just go down down, down. And we see the sailors finally hurl him into the sea. And we see the sailors be the first to move from fear of the storm to fear of man to fear of God. And we see them pray and receive salvation in the book of Jonah. What happens to Jonah? Chapter two says, you cast me into the deep and the flood surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever. He's drowning. And if I wasn't terrified enough of drowning, I decided to Google it. Um, according to Google, people can struggle on the surface of the water for about 20 to 60 seconds before they are exhausted and become completely submerged. Um, so have you ever tried to ride the waves when you're on vacation at the beach? And what always happens, at least if you're Emily Allgood, is you're quickly reminded of the harsh power of the water when the wave just goes right over top of you and the current pulls you under and you are literally spinning under the water and you don't know the right from the left or top from the bottom. And just as you're about to panic, it lets go of you and you can breathe a breath of fresh air. I imagine this happening to Jonah as he's gasping and fighting in these huge stormy waves and he can't catch a breath. But unlike myself or us, when we're trying to ride the waves, it says the waters closed in over me to take my life. Google tells us after 20 to 60 seconds, you become completely submerged and then it's two to three more minutes roughly before you drown. So you can imagine him exhausted, the waters close in over him. He looks up towards the surface 
And those waves that were at one time keeping him from a breath are all of a sudden calmed. He goes on to say, the weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains, meaning he was at the bottom of the sea. I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever. So somewhere between one minute and four minutes, God sends a large fish to give Jonah a breath and save him. And finally, he prays. We haven't seen Jonah pray at all yet in the book of Jonah, and we can assume he hasn't been praying for a while, or at least since he started to flee from God's presence. Because if he truly believes he can flee from his presence, he's probably not gonna pray while doing so. And if he does pray, he already knows what God's gonna say, and he's already decided he's not doing that. So out of, again, pride and disobedience, he would rather be thrown into a sea and die than cry out to his God. Um, what have you stopped praying about? Or what storm have you been struggling in for so long that you've become apathetic towards it? Infertility, cancer, jealousy, comparison, your marriage, your husband, your kids that don't yet know Jesus to adopt or not to adopt. Your finances, the relationship with your mom, the list goes on. But what have you started to believe you can hide from God? Chapter two is Jonah's autobiography describing his horrific details of his death, by, almost death by drowning. In chapter two, verse one, it mentions he was in the belly of Sheol. I like the NIV's translation that says, deep in the realm of the dead, a place where some believed even God could not reach. So Jonah thinks, this is it. I'm going to Sheol, I'm going to the realm of the dead. Yet, when I looked up, those waters actually calmed. Could God possibly be here? If you remember, I don't know, a few semesters ago, a couple years ago, we did a study on where God dwells. We talked about a few places in the Bible where God comes near to their people. So in Genesis, we see God creates Adam and Eve to live in perfect communion with him. So the first pages of the Bible, we see God coming near to his people. And Adam and Eve have a deficient view of God. They believe that he's withholding pleasure from them or he's definitely not enough to meet their needs. So they forgo the nearness of God. It says in Genesis that God drove out the man from Eden. In Exodus, we see the Israelites freed from slavery in Egypt where God leads them through the desert to the promised land. And the Israelites are fearful, but God leads them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He comes near. During the early days away from Egypt, God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle as a place for God to dwell with his people. And a little while later, David's son Solomon builds the temple. So throughout the Old Testament, the temple represents God's nearness of God drawing near to, their, to his people. In verse four, Jonah says, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. So Jonah is driven away, just like Adam and Eve were driven away. Remember, Jonah was a good Hebrew boy. He knew all these stories in the Old Testament. He knew of God's desire to have union with his people. But just like Adam and Eve, he had a deficient view of God, believing he was confined to the temple or at most to the boundaries of Israel. That's probably why he thought he could flee. At the same time, he's starting to envision a broader scope to God's power. He told the sailors to throw him in the water and the seas calmed. And maybe, maybe he felt like God was there because of him, that the storm was causing him, but, but God's only in the temple in Israel. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I should, maybe God's telling me to go in the waters and they'll calm, but I thought God was just in the temple. But they threw me in and the storm calmed. Or maybe he remembers Solomon's prayer over the temple in 1 Kings. Listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. 
Or maybe Jonah remembers from Old Testament Bible classes that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, like it says in Exodus. In Jonah's suffering and distress, he stops listening to his fleeting emotions and remembers the Lord. He quotes Old Testament Bible verses and stories. In fact, the majority of chapter two is various Psalms. Verse seven says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Jonah is starting to broaden his scope of God and starting to have hope that even he could reach to the depths of Sheol and that God would hear his cry at the bottom of the sea. So chapter two is Jonah's thankful realization that God must be omnipresent, defined as widely or constantly encountered. It means he's infinite, boundless, far-reaching, worldwide, global. There's no person or place or situation that God avoids or flees from. There's no, God cannot be contained. He can be everywhere and he can act everywhere. He does not act in all places by way of influence as if he's from a distance, but he comes near. He's with us. We cannot measure God or define him. God chooses to dwell with his people. He desires to draw near. So um, I grew up the youngest of three siblings with two loving parents, and we were deeply involved in our church community. Um, We had a great church community, both inside church and outside of church. Our best friends were each other and our neighbors on Columbine Drive. And um, we were pretty fun, fun little family. (laughs) One evening, my siblings and I were home by ourselves while mom and dad took a drive, AKA they drove around the block a million times while they argued as a way for us kids not to hear them. And they get home from their drive and dad immediately walks to his bedroom and starts packing things. And my siblings and I kind of stop playing our game and we look up at each other and just kind of share a look of panic and confusion before we just continue playing our game, but all of a sudden in silence. Mom comes over and she sits with us for a moment before she says, Amy, Michael, and Emily, I've asked your dad to move out. Oh, sorry. Good thing. My husband's a good guy. Um, I was nine years old when my dad moved out. I was nine when I was hurled into the heart of the seas. The floods surrounded me and all the waves and billows were passing over me. I couldn't catch my breath. I was lost and confused and panicking. My loving, fun, strong dad in my nine-year-old eyes was leaving in a matter of minutes for reasons I knew nothing about. I continued to sink when my dad never made contact with my family. So we had to try and stay afloat with our new family status in the void that my dad once filled. My mom was working her tail off as a nurse trying to pay the bills, which meant we were home alone a lot, trying to find rides to our activities, feeding ourselves dinner, putting ourselves to bed. What I didn't know as a little girl was my dad was suffering from severe alcoholism to the point of um, never, for years, never bringing a paycheck home if he came home at all and having more than one affair. Not only that, he became deeply involved with gambling, deeply involved to the point of my family receiving phone calls to our landline phone back then with people on the other end demanding money and making threats to our family. My mom had conversations with my siblings about what to do if someone came to our house angry and demanding things, and that did happen. People did come, and they just walked right into our house looking for my dad, and my mom had had enough. So for 14 years, we heard silence from my dad before he eventually passed away. We were quickly sinking. 
Three months after my dad moved out, my mom received news she was diagnosed with progressive stage three breast cancer. This meant my siblings and I were still home alone a lot, but this time, because mom was here in Iowa City having a mastectomy and receiving high doses of chemo. If I wasn't at school, I was in a waiting room with my grandma waiting for my ghost of a mom to finish up chemo so we could drive back home and do it again a few weeks later. Finally, chemo was finished and my mom was unrecognizable, even to herself. She would share about a particular time she looked in the mirror and didn't recognize herself. Even her gums were white, she said. My grandma, years later, would say when she'd check on my mom in her bedroom, she didn't know if she was dead or alive by just looking at her. So my dad just left our family three months ago. We're dirt poor, and now my mom is dying in the bedroom next to mine. So I'm no longer thinking I'm at the bottom. Weeds are wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains, and I couldn't breathe. Like Jonah, I was a good Christian, Jesus-loving girl. I knew all the stories, all the facts, all the songs, and I even felt emotion and connection to God. But it wasn't till I hit the bottom, until weeds were wrapped about my head that I came to my end of my efforts to save myself, that I finally cried out to God. In my bedroom one night, I started singing the only hymn that came to my mind. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Over and over and over until I'm just sobbing alone in my room, exhausted and singing, you can have my dad, but you have to give me Jesus. You can have my mom too, but please, you have to give me Jesus. And God heard me and gave me a breath. He took my outstretched hand and helped me take one small step forward. I cried out again and he helped me take another step forward. Our greatest need is not the nearness of God. Or forget that. Our greatest need is not the absence of suffering. Our greatest need is the nearness of God. During the time when my grandma would have us kids do extra long good nights with my mom in case she didn't live to see morning, the nearness of God came to my mom in a very physical way. One night when my mom was lying in bed, she actually felt God's hand physically touch her hand. She would say it didn't scare her at all, but it caused her to take a deep breath. And she'd kind of pause in her story, and i said, well, what was that? What, what do you make of that? Well, Emily, I was dying, and God gave me a breath. Well, then what? You just woke up, went about your day? And my mom would say, I woke up a new single mom with three kids, living in poverty, and sicker than I even knew a person could be but I had a cloud of peace over me. My mom's situation hadn't changed. If anything, it had gotten worse, but God was near. Our greatest need is not the absence of suffering. Our greatest need is the nearness of God. Salvation from drowning for me looked like uncertainty, poverty, and a lot of tears, but God was near. And every minute of every day, he was helping me breathe. And finally, Jonah, at the end of himself, is realizing that God must be near. And God hears Jonah's cry and he sends a fish. Salvation from drowning for Jonah looked like living in the stomach of a smelly hot sea monster. But Jonah cries out a prayer of thanksgiving. The circumstance is not ideal, but God is near and he's helping Jonah breathe. Jonah, or God knew Jonah's stubborn heart. God knew he had to do something outrageous to get his attention and it did. In verse eight, we see Jonah praising God for the grace lavished upon idol worshipers who turned from their idols. And in verse nine, Jonah confesses, salvation belongs to the Lord. So we don't need to look too, okay, go back. Um, Jonah's view 
So salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's view of God keeps broadening as we go along in chapter two. So it's broadening even further, realizing that if salvation belongs to the Lord, and if God's mercy and favor extends beyond the temple and beyond the boundaries of Israel, then maybe the Ninevites' salvation also belongs to the Lord. But why is it so hard for Jonah and so hard for us to love our enemies enough to give them mercy? I think one of the many reasons is because it questions our supremacy. At the beginning of this week's study, we compare Jonah's story with Paul's story. Paul was born an Israelite and became a persecutor of the church, starting a campaign to murder Christians who turned from Judaism. But God gets his attention on the road to Damascus. He sees a bright light causing him to go blind and he hears Jesus' voice. He believes, gets baptized, and becomes a Christian missionary. So as we compare Paul's missionary journey to Rome, we see Paul and Jonah make almost opposite decisions in the midst of the storm. We see Jonah run away from God while Paul runs towards God. We see Jonah go down, down, and become almost apathetic. And we see Jonah or Paul literally stand up and cry out to his God in the midst of the storm. But what I find interesting is that both Paul and Jonah were drowning in similar sin before God got their attention. Paul, or Saul as he was before that, was a severe racist. Pharisee among Pharisees, he'd never share a meal with a Gentile. The very word Gentile, goim, was a curse word to be thrown around with content. For his Israelite brothers and sisters who would turn away from Judaism, he'd rather have them killed than dishonor their people and turn toward this new, different religion. And we don't have to venture too far to see that Jonah also is racist, withholding mercy from the Ninevites because he didn't want them to have what he had. The Jews are the chosen people after all, and the Ninevites, not only are they evil, but they're different in ethnicity and nationality from the Jews and from Jonah. And we don't need to look too deep to see that we too suffer from severe racism. I'm not referring to grandma and grandpa's horrific comments in public. I'm referring to what I believe is even more scary than that. The silent, hidden, sometimes unconscious racism that has the power to destroy. It's in our thoughts, the flinches, the assumptions we make about people who are different than us. And it puts us on the track to stop empathizing and start assuming the worst. Corporate America Human Resources likes using the word microaggressions. It's a mouthful, but it does a decent job describing the concept. It says indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group. So I'm not immune to these mindsets, so I'll be the first to confess um, with a short story. So my husband and I, a little while ago, had recently met a Congolese family that immigrated to the States and settled in Coralville, Iowa. Um, We shared meals together over broken English and lots of body motions, and we were getting to know this sweet and very overwhelmed family. Sometimes while I was working a shift at the hospital, my husband would pack up the kids and go to their house, and the kids would play while my husband worked with the dad to make a resume and apply for jobs. And finally, one day before he left, I asked the question that had been stirring in me for a little while. Is someone watching the kids while you're there? Well, this could come across as a good mom looking out for her kids. The truth, it was an unconscious racism on my part that there was constant chaos at their house, that no one was keeping an eye on the kids, that they weren't very good parents. The truth, Eric and Justine have walked through literal hell on earth in genocide and refugee camps all the while taking care of their kids and their nieces and nephews who had been orphaned. They know how to parent. I've heard people say when talking about their kids who attend a diverse school, my kids don't even see color. 
This is a microaggression, the actual message. People of color aren't unique or special. They don't have their own culture or history. Well-intentioned, but extremely destructive. Or everyone can succeed in this society if they work hard enough. The message, people of color are lazy and incompetent and need to work harder. If you're thinking this doesn't apply to you, it might be because you're deeper in it than you realize. This was me several years ago. I'm not racist. I mean, look at all these friends I have from different cultures and countries. Or I'm not, I don't think this applies to me. I've been on all these mission trips. I mean, I even married a Latino guy. Not Lance isn't, but I'm just an example. I adopted, or I adopted all these like Asian little girls. I don't think this applies to me. The only person that's conquered racism is Jesus. So we're all in this together, which is why we need to start talking about it and confessing. Who is Jonah and who are we to decide who receives mercy? Who are we to limit the grace that we give? Yet, while Jonah looked to the holy temple, we look towards the cross. While salvation came to Jonah via fish and blindness for Saul slash Paul, salvation came via a cross for us. Jesus died for our racism and for the sins of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Jesus also deeply yearns that every tribe, nation, and tongue would hear the gospel and respond with their own unique song of worship. Our God is a God who intervenes. Our God is a God who is long-suffering and endlessly pursuing us. Our God is omnipresent, limitless, and always near. Emmanuel, God is with us. Our God is a God who doesn't withhold his mercy. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He gives it when he wants it. He owns it and he dispenses it. And the good news is we can never lose it because he owns it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray.